Hi, everybody. Uh, this is John Atak yet again, and I'm intrigued and fascinated to welcome Sean McCraney. Hi, Sean. Hi, John. And I am intrigued and fascinated to be here with you. Mm. I've watched some of your things, uh, the Manson stuff and some of your insights on Scientology. Really great. I really appreciate you taking the time with me. Oh, well, it, it's a great pleasure. I, I've watched a video that uh, our friend Matt Bywater, my colleague Matt Bywater, made with you, and I found it entirely compelling. And we've spoken oh. briefly uh, the other week, um, but I'm trying to find the words to say how we're going to describe you. And I think what I'm I'm opting for, if you agree, is a redeemed predator. How I does that love, feel? I will accept that readily. Yeah, because I think you and I both have a little bit of a problem with words like sociopath, psychopath, narcissist, all of this kind of stuff. So they carry so much baggage. Yeah. So you were born with a predatory nature and you were brought up um, particularly by your mum, from what I've seen, to, to be predatory. Yeah. All there. Tell us something about your, your early childhood. Let's start there. Um, the, the way you behaved towards other children as, as, a, as a child. I guess the best way to summarize uh, is that I was uh, originally uh, aggressive, uh, demanding, but friendly. And I, and I wanted to engage with people, but when I did, I quickly realized that uh, they did not operate the way I wanted them to. And uh, so I had to start to uh, manipulate my surroundings in order to get those things to happen. Mm. And um, there was an overt aggression in me, and that would grow when resisted. And it was there from a very young age with the neighborhood kids. And I was never really, um, I was never able to fit into the way society saw things. I always, I was always off a little bit. Mm -hmm. I've learned later from my dad that my grandfather was a lot like that. He was almost like autistically uh, relating to the culture and community around him. I didn't know that. I'm sure a lot of this has come from his side and being just a little bit off kilter. You know how you're in a community and you see people in a group and they're just, just not in sync that with me. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I, from watching your conversation with, with Matt and later with um, Anthony Magnabosco, um, it, I, I've been studying this condition since the 1980s, um, when I started to try and understand what had driven Lafayette Ronald Hubbard to do the yeah. awful things he did to people, yeah. and why it was also that so many of us believed in him, despite the fact that when you added up his behavior, he was selfish and yeah. um, sadistic even. Um, and it seems to me that, that you're, you show that there are nuances to this this isn't a, a simple cut and dried thing the thing that particularly got me is that the, the, the standard definition of the psychopath the foundational definition is somebody who doesn't have conscience mm -hmm. but you you said that 
you, you grew up within the, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Uh, mm -hmm. You're up there in Salt Lake City, um, Mormon Central. And, I am now, yeah. Yeah, you are now. And it seemed that the rules of the Mormon Church, and particularly as they apply to sexuality and, and sexual desire, those were things that, that you felt you had to follow as a, as a young man, that, that you were I within felt, that system. Yeah, and I think, John, since we talked last, I thought about that, and I really think that that was because I was sexualized very, very early mm. through a bunch of neighborhood experiences and familial experiences. And so I think because I was sexualized so early and was so interested in, in sexual things, that uh, the LDS church's teachings were constantly hitting me uh, on that note because I knew on that note I had something that was off. And so I think that that played into my um, just feeling badly about the sexuality, but not wanting to stop my ways. Hmm. Wanting to, I should say, but not stopping my ways. Yeah. Uh, how young were you when when you had your first sexual awakening? Boy, I mean, we're talking uh, like very young, three to four. Okay. Yeah. And then ongoing, ongoing with uh, members of the family. Uh, strangers who preyed upon me when I, I was in my early teens, 12 and 13. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then just random engagements, I would be walking to school, uh, to a school or through a school on a Saturday, and there would be somebody there and somehow we would end up being engaged sexually. So it was, <laughs> it was just like this kind of thing around me that I increasingly knew about myself and, and, and it blossomed, but I also had the LDS church constantly saying, you know, how, you know, that is your body sacred and it is to be shared with your wife only in marriage, in the temple. La, 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 la. And uh, so there was this, but there was also some conscience to that. And that's why this nuance we're talking about is so important, John, because I mean, L. Ron Hubbard, I could see myself if I never had my roadside experience being very much like L. Ron Hubbard. Hmm. You know, he, you take him in his disparate parts, you can accept him. But when you, when you put that guy together, look out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. The, the other aspect of, of your behavior, which I want to look at from... And and this is a conversation that I anticipate is going to take 10 or 20 hours. Oh, oh, <laughs> so we're not going to get this done. You are way too complicated to get this done in 10 minutes. Um, okay. But the other aspect is 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 the violence, the aggression. How early was it that, that you started it to experience, well, to actually exhibit violence towards other people? The minute I was in a circumstance where there were other people who confronted me. Uh, my age, whatever it was, my tendency is still, even today, initially violent reaction. So, and that I never had any kind of tampering down by the LDS church because that that religion almost endorses it. Yeah. They come 
close to endorsing violence. And so I never really felt any compulsion not to fight, not to be brutal. And and so from early childhood, you'd be getting into scraps with other kids, yeah? Oh, yeah. 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 And I would go to the principals and my mom would get called and I would get, uh, not timeouts, what they call them, detentions and, and all of those things. But my mom encouraged it too. She encouraged me to be tough. Her oldest son, my oldest brother who, who took his life, uh, my oldest brother was not a confrontational boy. Hmm. And so my mom did not really like that about him. And she wanted her second son to be something a little tougher. And that, that is what I was kind of groomed to be. Yeah. So, I mean, when we talked before and I, you said that it was both nature and nurture, which, yeah. which I, I think is very important because there is evidence that given proper nurture, you know, we have James Fallon, of course, the pro-social sociopath, this idea that 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 your natural inclinations can be uh, reined in, and which yeah. is something you have done for yourself much later on in life. Right. Um, okay, so uh, you told Matt that that um, you know, if uh, a hitchhiker flipped the bird at, at your mum when she was driving past, she'd stop the car, roll back, and so go get him. Get him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd jump out and I would pummel and I'd get yeah. back in and, and I, the way I recollect it, we just drive on. Yeah. <laughs> and and how badly damaged would the hitchhiker be by this point? Not badly. It would be Good. to the point where they're crying mercy. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I wasn't a murderer. Mm. I, I had a murderous intent, but I had a violent uh, intent. And there's a little bit of a difference, again, nuance there. I don't think I sought to murder, but I could have murdered and I could be driven to that anger level, but that wasn't my intent. My intent was to dominate, shut up, teach a lesson, stop them from doing whatever they were doing that uh, irritated me. Mm. Yeah. And you still feel that. Yeah. That's still. I, bat I battle it. I Like we talked, John, I battle it daily. Mm. Uh, it's not something that just goes away. And the way I see it is I'm in this body with these chemicals and this background and this DNA. Mm. And I don't think the mechanics of that can really be altered physically or biologically. But what I think can happen is you can learn, a, a, you can learn how to manage it. And that's what I learned mm. is learned how to manage it. Um, and that's through something we'll talk about. But uh, prior to that, there was no management, none, day or night, violence. And and that meant that you'd get into altercations almost daily, sort of several times a weekly, week. Weekly, uh, well, first of all, as a teen daily, then as a young adult, less, but more, uh, maybe uh, weekly, every other week, and so you learn because you can't do that constantly or you go to jail and you learn that the law is out there and that you're not impervious to punishment. So I had to also get smart and I had to learn how to get my revenge and ex exact it on people at the right time. So I learned to control that, that violent thing. It wasn't so impetuous anymore. It was more calculated. So mm -hmm. I guess 
over time, I became more calculated in what I was doing. And that includes uh, sexual relations and everything else. Everything became more and more calculated. Beastly when I was a little kid, calculated as I grew. Mm. And I mean, and, and I think that that says something about your temperament, that you have the ability to consider things intellectually and then make decisions. So the impulsivity that is usually associated with predatory people, you, your intelligence is such that you were able to await gratification, as they say, and put off the revenge, but you still yeah. wanted to get your own back. You still wanted to get yeah. revenge. Yeah, and I almost always did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, I did. You're right. You're right. And, and so we could throw that in as something that's mitigating my condition. Mm. I, I do have the ability to reason through uh, things and make decisions today, I would say, better than I did before. Yeah, it would certainly seem so. And you, you said that that um, you you had you 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 felt no empathy, um, and that that's something that started to change when you started having children. Yeah. That so, and I I think if you could tell us a little about the attachment, you know, the feelings you had when your first child was born. What, did you have that? paternal connection immediately or was that something that developed yeah i mean i have to admit this and this is hard for my daughters to hear but i i don't i don't see people in terms of um this is my daughter um i love her because she's mine i see everybody as people and I and I and I try to love them the same. I don't have a different kind of love, but I have a, a different responsibility for my daughters. Mm. And and that response, I've always been responsible, oddly enough, on things I care about. And so I've been able to responsibly see I brought them in. These are little ones relying on mom and dad. I can't, I it was too much of my ego would be harmed if I became a deadbeat dad. Mm. My ego. And we got out into the community that I wasn't helping and I was, that would be too much for my ego. So I had to initially do that. I didn't really feel it, but I knew that that was something that was important and it would be important to me to do. And I do love them. I, I love them. I mm. love them greatly, but it, it, it started off with responsibility, I guess. And maybe that's normal for males. I don't know. I, I think it's certainly a, a part of the package, but um, yeah. I mean, I, I have a friend who, when his second child was born, because he didn't feel blissed out about it, took to his bed oh. for four days. Yeah, yeah, but, oh yeah, uh, bliss going on. Yeah, no, and and how how is your relationship? Do you have three daughters? Is that right? I do. I have three daughters. They're all in their 30s. Two are married. One is not. And I have a wonderful relationship with all of them. Uh, they're all in their own right, very unique. And uh, and we 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 speak weekly, if not daily. And uh, yeah, no issue there. There's there. I never molested them. I never physically harmed them. Maybe a couple times I grabbed their arm. Uh, I would be very direct verbally but never, no beatings, no molestings, nothing like that. I was mm -hmm. able to take them 
and sequester them in my mind away from the rest of the human populace and what I would do to them. Which is quite fascinating. Um, and and it, it suggests that there's some little kernel of empathy that, that was always there, ready yeah. to be stimulated. Yeah. And yeah. in this case, um, it was stimulated by what you call your roadside experience in 1997. Is that right? Yeah. Stimulated, germinated, planted, began, all of those words was the genesis of my starting to look inwardly and and realize something has to change. Hmm. And and that that was a, a religious experience that you had, yeah? It was. It was a religious epiphany. I don't I I I want to stay here, uh, claim here and now. You know, I've read William James, Religion and Its Varieties. I've done all that, and I understand that religion is very subjective and mm -hmm. that our experiences with it are entirely between the individual and whatever maker they have. I am not saying that this uh, is um, something everybody should have, must have, mm -hmm. but I had it. And, mm -hmm. and do you want me to tell it, John? Yes, please do. Yeah. So, so by August of 1997, I'd been married for maybe 13 years. I had had jobs, but I was miserable in all of them. I was a stockbroker, miserable, searching through Eastern metaphysics, Greek philosophy, uh, French literature, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky. I sought through all of it to try to find out what is true. And it was a sincere effort. And by mm -hmm. August, 97 and i had tried sexual dalliances i had tried drugs i tried all that and violence wasn't working and so i had as a man been kind of brought to the end of my rope literally and that day i was really down and i was driving to pick my daughters up and i had become a nihilist in the sense that i did not believe in anything i thought there could be things but i was really void and uh, active Mormon at the same time in my ward doing the jobs, you know, actively, but uh, uh, self-harming uh, under my clothes, burning myself and cutting and all kinds of things to deal with this angst of what is wrong with me? Why can't I be like other people, so to speak? And uh, I the radio was on a station and there was a guy on there and he said, if you could get your life right, why haven't you done it? And for our audience watching, you know, I had been on a Mormon mission, believe it or not. And I was one of those guys going door to door. I conformed enough, but I got in fights on the Mormon mission, you know? So I had done all the things, but nothing was working. And the guy on the radio said, the reason that you haven't changed yourself is because you can't change yourself. You cannot do it. And so I listened. I thought, wow, that's, that's, that is really a remarkable claim because the church I've been going to, all they've been saying is you can do it. You better do it. You should do it. Yeah. So this gave me something to believe that I had not really understood yet. Mm. And I listened to him and he said, and that's why Jesus came. And I don't even like the name Jesus. I call him Yeshua and, and Yeshua yeah. came. And, and, and this guy says he lived a life that you couldn't live uh, and you will never live. And he died for you. And, and so therefore stop trying to fix yourself. I'm summarizing here, mm -hmm. look him in faith. Mm -hmm. And that started me 
on, wow, I had an option here. It wasn't about me doing it. It was about someone else coming who was qualified, apparently, hmm. to do what I couldn't do for humanity. Hmm. But I did it for me, too, because I'm part of humanity. And at the end of that day, I had been radically changed in my mindset before the living God. My mindset now was, he is not out to get me. I am not causing him to be angry at me. He loves me as I am. And I was the worst. That's why <laughs> I say I was the worst of the worst was saved by the best of the best. So when that locked into my brain, I was what they call be regenerated, born again. And I had new eyes to see. And I, and I could see now that it wasn't up to me to do these things. It was up to him and me just to look to him in faith. No, nothing else. Mm. And on the important thing to remember about that experience, I came home and told my wife and she thought it was, you know, just another one of my journeys. It's Mark's, it's this, and that it would fade, but it didn't. Mm. And uh, I started to allow, this is how believers put it, to allow him to take the reins and him make the decision on what to do when there's somebody at a stoplight that won't go when the light turns green. He says, John, that's my job. That's not your job in my mind, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I surrender to him. I let him take over my life. And that's been going on since 97. Mm -hmm. And it has worked. And mm -hmm. the thing that's convinced my wife, who was LDS, and my three daughters, who were all LDS, and we were all engaged, to all leave that faith was not doctrine. It was not the people. It was the fact that I had changed so much. Mm -hmm. Was that witness to them that they said, so, he know, he's had something happen to him that we're not getting anywhere else. And so they started to listen and come along. And that's mm -hmm. really the, the nutshell story of what happened to help me see the light so to speak yeah and i, I said you know i was very i really was very impressed by by what you said with, to matt and and to anthony magnabosco because you seem to have you know we, we're all kind of used to bible bashers we're all kind of used to people are trying to evangelize and get us to believe something your view seems to be highly rational and highly personal that you're saying mm -hmm. This is this is how I see the world. It may not be how the world is, yeah, but it is how I see the world. And you stopped Anthony Magna Bosco in his tracks by basically saying, "And if you take this away from me, I'll become the old Sean again." And yeah. I've often wondered if Anthony, oh, sorry, Anthony, Anthony, American pronunciation. I've often wondered if he thinks about what happens to people after he's kind of stopped them in the street and pulled away their belief. But, you know, it, it, it's concerned me, I must say. Well, your concern is justified. And I love Anthony. I think he's a wonderful human being. And I'm sure in what he's doing, there has been some good. He's opened the eyes of people who are in religious bondage fine. Yeah. But I do find it highly irresponsible. Street epistemology, I find that highly irresponsible because on the street, you don't know what people are clinging to. Yeah. I'm, yeah. So I, I, I worry about that a little bit, to tell you the truth. 
Well, and the, the you know there there needs to be a follow up. You know, I, I've been very much involved with helping people to change their beliefs from malignant beliefs mm. to hopefully more helpful beliefs. But no part of that is me suggesting that I know the truth. Right. It, it's right. absolutely about them finding out what their truth is and how they feel. And that's beautiful. Um, well, it, it it just seems sensible. You you know, you want people to think for themselves. Well, you're going to have yeah. to put that there and say, well, and so it, it will. It has often happened that at the end of of a conversation with somebody where, you know, they've decided that they are going to change what they're doing in life, that they'll then say to me, well, what do you believe? At which point I have to say, oh, no, you don't want that. You <laughs> look at the mess. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could lead you right back in the dark. <laughs> exactly. And um, it means I have an empty bank account, obviously, but uh, that's not <laughs> yeah. necessarily the most important thing in life. Right. So, I, I mean, when we talked and, and having watched you in conversation, you come over as one of the most charming people I've ever met. I just have oh. to say that. And... Mm. And yet what you're saying is that you fundamentally don't trust anyone no. and that you've learned how to charm people. And yeah. when I asked you about that before, you, I, I said, well, you know, because you said that when you were a kid, um, you went through this change where you realized that other kids weren't doing what you wanted. And so you learned how to charm them. So yeah. tell, tell our viewers what, what that means or how that works. Well, you know, I was kind of like uh, the king and Lord of the Flies or something at, at one point in time when the kids, when we, we were all young, mm. but uh, a kid named Mike, he got his black belt in judo in the neighborhood. And, uh, and when I saw that power base sort of shift mm. that I'm not going to be able to lead anymore the way I had I looking back, I think that's when I started to see you get more with honey than you do vinegar. Mm. And so it became a uh, part of my uh, approach. I have to admit uh, what you would, what we say, my charm, that is natural to me. I am mm. that way. And I mean that sincerely, mm. uh, but I used it in those former years to get what I wanted. And I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I'm not feigning uh liking you but i am doing it for a reason mm. yeah no if that helps but so i'm not i guess that would might make me even more sinister when i'm not uh following because it is i am someone who can attract people uh just by virtue of whatever i am as in my physical self and how i relate to people uh the only difference is today i care about you john care about anybody i i do care about them in a way that i never ever ever cared about before and i would not prey upon them anymore um because of what happened and do you yeah how do you feel on a on a on a daily basis you you it, you seem to express yourself as a, as a happy person but you also are talking about having to struggle every day so where is the balance in that for you? Um, my nature is affable, but my inward temperament is rage. Okay. Seriously. Yeah. And I think some some people know that. I think they can see it. Uh, and I don't. And and I would just mark them as being smart. 
because I, I've had to take all the things that anger me constantly and set them aside that builds up. And unless you have some means to get rid of it, you're going to be so happy is a kind of a word. It looks like I'm happy. I think I'm really, what you're witnessing is I'm more filled with um, kind of a joy, kind of a satisfaction, kind of uh, uh, I've been emancipated in my, who I was. And because of that, I'm grateful. But I'm really not a happy person. Not, things don't make me happy. Mm. Very few things make me happy. I, I externally, I just, yeah. So I don't know. I'm kind of confused right now on that subject. Happiness and circumstantial, you know. So I don't trust happiness. I think it can be yanked away from us at any time. So I don't really. I'm not happy because I don't trust happiness. Mm. I'm, I'm all self-protected still, you know. But outward, I'm trying to choose to love and do it right. It's getting a little in the weeds here with your questions, more than it was with Matt, because I'm having to really start to think. Well, I, I think Matt did a fantastic job. He did. And, he did. And of course, it, you know, he came to me and he said, you've got to talk to this guy. Oh. Um, but watch my interview first. Now, you know, I, I don't watch a lot of YouTube, so I've got to yeah. say, because there's too yeah. much of it. And I'm so busy with, with what I'm doing. But I, I sat down and started watching and, and I, I went, Matt's right. I, I need to understand this because there are so many contradictions here. So that the notion of joy, that was something that struck me as well. That Do you take pleasure from music? Do you take pleasure from art? I do. And boy, you're astute because those two things, along with food, uh, sex and getting high, they make me happy. Art, film, uh, good film, hard music, food, sex, and uh, they make me happy. You're right. Anything outside of that, I don't go to, I don't, I'm probably like you maybe, John. I don't go to sporting events. I don't watch it. I don't participate. I don't care about men's group. I don't care about cars. I don't care about anything but those things I just mentioned. They make me happy. So it's kind of like my pleasure centers, the, the size of a lizard's. And I just, you know, I can be very easily satisfied with those fleshly things. Mm. But, you know, one of the, the commonplaces, particularly with extreme psychopaths, and, and you're very evidently not a serial killer or a, a criminal psychopath, right. but is that they have tremendous difficulty in taking pleasure in the world. Uh and so they ramp things up to the extreme and you then have the escalation phenomenon, which the FBI are so interested in, that they have to keep doing more. They have to keep pushing further. Uh, and you perhaps had a little bit of that escalation yeah. before your, or yeah. quite a lot of it, before your roadside experience. Yeah. And that, you know, however we define what happened, and I'm an agnostic and and I I'm absolutely happy for people to define the world in their own way. It it, it yeah. really doesn't bother me. Uh, well, actually, sometimes it does bother me. <laughs> Let's be honest. There are things that, you know, if I wish <laughs> the, the thuggies going out and murdering people for the sake of yeah. Charlie, that does bother me, I, I must admit. But for the most part, the fundamental, the sense of, you know, believing in a higher power or believing in the Tao or, you know, mm -hmm. believing in Buddha mind or, or, or whatever, mm -hmm. that's absolutely fine. But in your case, your 
particular experience allowed you to transform. But you said something that I think is really smart, which is that, and you'll forgive me for saying that, I'm sure, right. that, <laughs> which is that it wasn't like, oh, now I'm born again and everything's fine. Your realization fine. was you were still the same person and you were yeah. going to have to keep working at it. And this gave you an access to that, which seems so much more sensible then, you know, I don't have to bother and I don't have to do any more work about this, which, which yeah. I think is often often the case. And people who are that way will, will generally lapse. You know, they'll last a certain time and then they'll return to what they were before. That's but right. for you, it's it's been something, you know, we're talking, what, 26 years now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fair, that's quite a marathon. And I, I stand uh, vehemently against the idea, the Christian idea of, you know, you're saved and everything changes and you're at, because all that does is it makes the person susceptible to more deception and they're living a counterfeit life. It's not really what God, I would think God would want for them. He doesn't want them embracing some package and swallowing the Kool-Aid and becoming something. He wants us engaged, in my opinion. And so I wasn't going to allow it anything to be feigned that's really important to me john in our conversation is that if it was going to be real it fucking better be real mm -hmm. because i have dealt with all the fake stuff and it does not work because it like you said the recidivism is huge mm -hmm. when you grab something that's emotionally charging and you think it's your savior and then you know a month a year you're back you know beating people on the side of the road yeah so it does take work. It does take getting involved in that and not resigning, but mm. fighting. And and realizing the benefit of, of what you've achieved, but knowing that you're going to have to keep on climbing. You're still on the road. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's rational thinking for anybody, whether God's included or not. And so I think that if you just take an X and X makes you think this way, X would work for you. I just happen to assign it uh, more to something more personal in my uh, estimation, but that's me, like I said. Yeah, and uh, yeah, which is, I think is very honourable. Um, how about humour? You know, the, do, are you so because you seem to to enjoy a degree of humour? I love it. Yeah, I love humour. And does can, that, that and go back? Gallows humour, dark humour, great mm -hmm. humour, uh, kind of often often part of something when I was younger that was. Uh, not accepted you know mm. a little too early too soon with me i i find the humor quickly in a devastation it would share it and then yeah yeah there's timing so you have to learn to time your humor <laughs> i'm getting better at that mm. and as a young man did you find the suffering of others humorous oh yeah mm. yeah I, I i still find uh suffering of, as long as it's not going to kill them or maim them, to me, it's hilarious. Mm. It is just flat out hilarious. And and that's the funny thing, like Matt, he and I traveled a little bit together here in Utah, and he's so kind. I mean, he's helping a squirrel that can't find its nut. I'm like, chase that thing down. I mean, and we were we are so different in the way that we just are, but humor, mm. I just find humor in everything, really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fundamental to me. My my wife and I were talking a couple of years ago, and 
um, as we were getting to know each other. And um, she asked me what, what my drive was. And I said, amusement. And she was a little bit shocked by this. And I said, but it, it, that's what's kept me afloat. I've, I've lived through very hard times. You know, I had Scientology harassing me on a daily basis for 16 years. And you've got to see the funny side, you know, uh, about ourselves. And, you know, that, that we aren't all that. We aren't um, that important, really. And um, humor kind of brings that out, doesn't it? It, hmm. it shows, John, that you have humor and you're not seeing yourself as so important. You can't find humor, even in pain. And that's what yeah. makes it human. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I never thought about whether there was any connection between the word humility and the word humor. And, uh, I think I, there might be. Yeah, they might be cognate. Um, because, you know, that leads us to a very significant realization for, for anybody, which you you express, you know, I, I see that, that you are not, um, you know, this is not braggadocio. You're not kind of, well, I'm fantastic. I found Jesus and I'm going to preach down to you. You seem, in fact, to have come to the, the opposite and proper perspective, which is we're human. And there's that H-U-M again, the beginning of that word, you know. <laughs> um, right. I think so. I think so. So your experience with, and, and I say, I, I'm going to want to come back and grill you for hours and hours and hours over the coming months. I'm sure of it. Oh, I can't wait. Just kidding. But, so we're only going to get a short distance in this conversation. I'm so yeah. aware of that. But your religious background, how old your parents joined the LDS when you were a child or, or were you born into it? Yeah, my uh, my mom, uh, East L.A., not very wealthy. Missionaries came to her door when she was married. She converted first. My dad converted. They they brought, they had two children at that time, and then I was born later into the Mormon church mm. and used it as a way to govern their large family. My parents were essentially... Uh, um, Hard, hard working, white trash that wanted to rise above and be better in their life. And they 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 proved that they could. So uh they came from tough times. The Mormon church helped them become more acceptable in the world, and they thought they would do the same for their children. Mm. And uh, we've mentioned your mom. What what sort of mom was your dad? My dad was um, probably a benign narcissist. Okay. He, everything was about him. He was an only child, mm -hmm. and it, and and he really didn't judge. He didn't care. He didn't, as long as it didn't affect him. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Pretty that much that. Bad. I, I'm fascinated that you use the term benign narcissist because so few people seem to realize that there are malignant narcissists who do harm in the world, but there are also benign narcissists who are just selfish and self-involved. Oh, uh, I, I That's probably more prevalent, don't you think? Oh, I, I think our whole society is pushing towards that as the ideal state for humanity. They want yeah. everybody to be, you know, 16 years old 
and stuck at home with with their phone buying as many things as possible while playing uh -huh. video games it, oh my gosh i'm so glad to talk to you it is apparent <laughs> yeah wow. and you know ho hopefully what we're doing might help some people to realize that that is a completely vacuous and empty way to be yeah um there's nothing in it. And also, I put forward a third class, of, which is benevolent narcissists, um, mm. people who have to be adulated because they don't have a sense of self otherwise. So David Bowie, Elton John, uh, Taylor Swift currently. There's an, oh. an amazing documentary about her. And she's interesting because I'm, I'm not particularly interested in her musically, um, but she's evidently brilliant. There are no two ways about that. And she writes some good lyrics and, and you know, very smart and also said to be the most polluting person on the planet because of the amount of <laughs> airplanes she owns. I don't know. Yeah. I just thought it was Richard Branson personally, but we won't get into that. Um, but it's clear that there's video of her from sort of three years old or what have you. And she keeps saying, you know, people have to approve of what I'm doing. People have to. And there's a point where she's crying because she's not won a Grammy. And she's going, I've got to try harder. I've got to try harder. And you go, you've got more private planes than Donald Trump. What's wrong with you? <laughs> You're there. With David Bowie, he talked about his parents not loving him. Mm. Um, and that, that you know, he says that Major Tom represents him, that he's trapped in this tin can and can't communicate with people. Mm. And I think as he, as he grew older and incredibly famous and influential, he became human. He he grew up. He matured. I, I think that's certainly true of Elton John. Um, so you have their narcissists, but they produce art because yeah. they want people to uh, applaud them. So, I mean, if you look at his early, Bowie's early recordings, The Laughing Gnome or Chim Chimini, Chim Chim Cheree, all sung in the voice of Anthony Newley, um, wow. which he kind of wow. retained throughout his life, that, that he wanted to be a star. Joe Cocker wow. once said that he was surprised when he met other singers that so many of them wanted to be stars, whereas what he wanted to do was to sing. You know? wow. yeah. And I, I think you can tell when you listen to him, you know. Yeah. But, so we have these other these other ways, you know, these ways of being, which are very damaging, that we have a society that's adrift. We're largely led by predators. Um, destructive people, uh, whether they're Democrat, Republican, conservative, communist, socialist, whatever they are, yeah. we seem to favor this type of personality. And I think mm. that you provide some kind of key to that in mm. that you can show people what's going on inside the politician's head, what they're actually, you know, they're not looking towards you know, peace and love and harmony for all of humanity. They're looking for something that's about their role and their dominance. Um, yeah. yeah. Would you care to expand on that? Do you have any comment upon that? I, you know, that's, it's fascinating, John, because what, before my 97 change, I would have had a lot to say about mm -hmm. the others. Uh, today, it's more of, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm in a place to judge somebody uh, who gives all the signs of being a lunatic, maniac, uh, demagogue, Donald Trump, all the signs of being narcissistic. 
I don't know things. I don't know things. And so try to hold back comment now on all of it because, but generally speaking, I think you're, I think you're dead on, dead on with your principles you just presented. And uh, I do think our society has become incomprehensibly selfish, self-absorbed. And because of that, I think they're able to be led by these malignant narcissists in their power plays because they're promised liberty, but they're not getting it. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm venturing into an area I don't really understand. It's something you and Matt are a little bit more inclined to, but I did want to comment something you said about art, creativity, Taylor Swift, Bowie, and, yeah. and John, and that is before I had my change, I too wanted fame. Mm. I thought it was special, and I wanted to achieve the highest of whatever it would be and i thought it might be business or something i don't know why and uh today i'm of the and my daughter and i would call this the inhibited art art artist inhibited creativity and i would be in the christian faith more like joe crocker Hmm. Uh, i would be not be elton john Hmm. the christian faith is full of the elton johns their pastors and their mega churches and their I am more like um, Joe Cotter. I want to do my art privately and I don't give a shit what you think about it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I retain my integrity while being creative. And so it's a little bit different than what Bowie and, and other people had. I want the I want the right to be as individual and as creative as I see it and for nobody to get in my way. And for me not to get in anybody's way, and that's my vision of a better life. Now, I don't know anything, but that's a, that's my vision of it. No, I think it's a it's a good vision. It it also became evident from your other conversations, and you know I really want people to go and look at what Matt did and what you did with um, who was the other guy with Anthony Anthony. His name is John Delin. He is one of the largest podcasters on Mormonism in the world. Yeah. It's it, the um, um the the podcast is what's it called? Um, it's called Mormon Stories. Mormon Stories, yeah. So I I I think it'd be very useful to people to to go and have a look at what you said there, and I I don't want to, you know, go through the same ground. Yeah. So so there's still some year for people to do that. But one thing that came out that you know I'm very impressed with you. What can I say? You know, you may have got the idea oh, by now, and um. One of the things that you put forward is is something that I believe profoundly, which is that organized religion is not very good for us generally. That it we you know I'm I'm a believer in disorganized religion <laughs> probably, but so you you had a period where you were involved with evangelical Christianity quite a long period yeah. I think, yeah, and and it it sort of. I have this sense that the organization molds people towards its own aims. And so you'll start, you know, I mean, the great scandals of of child sexual abuse among the Catholics, the Anglicans, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, wherever you look, institutionalized religion seems to start protecting predatory people and elevating predatory people. You've said this about the the Mormons that that you felt looking at the senior figures around you, they were the same as you. They were people yeah. who were out for everything they could get 
and yeah. they had no concern for others. So yeah. um, tell us tell us that how you feel about you know when a what what is the 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 right sort of amount of people in a religion? I think it's probably one. You know, <laughs> you yeah. you have your relationship. Let's get off into Joe Campbell. This idea that there are shamanic religions where somebody has a vision and an experience, often during an illness as a child, and they then teach that, and they become a medicine man or a witch doctor or a shaman or whatever we want to say. Then you get religions which have books and a priesthood, and the priests recite the books. They don't have the experience anymore. Um, yeah. You open that out a little bit for us from your own perspective. Okay, from my perspective, and let me let me say this, and it's really important for me to say it, John, is that uh, my nose has been in that ancient text, what they call the Bible. That book does not support organized religion. No. In the list, it does not support it. It supports one person and their direct relationship to whoever. That is why what you just said is absolutely true. Why? Because God knows that when humans uh, collect, they make themselves God. They 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 uh, have a culture. They demand conformity. They teach their books, their priesthood, and then thinking is done, and then depredations are are allowed in that. When the thinking stops within a group of people, that's when you can start screwing their daughters. So, <clears throat> bottom line, I believe that the the text clearly shows. That all of religion, all of it, is idolatry. It's mm. just a form of idolatry. And it is not what God intended, and that's for the individual. And by the way, we're all agnostics, John. Forget about anything else. We are not operating on any proofs here. It's yeah. all we don't know. So let's get that straight. Yeah. But uh, that being said, religion is anathematic to liberty. It's anathematic to freedom, uh, love, mm. because... Look, at, let me put it to you this way. If you give one law, one rule in a group of people, just one, that's what religions do, you cause automatic hate and acceptance for each other. We have a church, and I say, okay, well, the only church we have here is you must not be from Great Britain. You can't be from Great Britain, all right? So suddenly we all become haters of people mm -hmm. from Great Britain. And if somebody from Great Britain comes, we ostracize them. That's antithetical to the message of God. Religion is a poison. It's not just the opiate of the masses. It's a poison. Mm -hmm. It's ruining people and taking them captive when God is just saying, come on, man. Come on. Love. I'm right with you on the religion thing. Right mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and you mentioned William James and the varieties of religious experience, which, which is an absolutely vital text. Yeah. He was a remarkable man. I, I spent years, you know, it was only a couple of years ago, I read a, a book called Ghost Hunters by Deborah Blum, who mm. was the president of the American Science Writers Guild. So that's who she is. And this book blew my mind because I didn't know that William James was a founder of both the British and the American Societies for Psychical Research. And wow. was himself profoundly committed to re religious belief. And he is the father of psychology. And yet he was skeptical, agnostic, and rational about it. And in the end felt 
that those societies for research had not really given full scientific proof of anything, though some of what they did is really quite fascinating. Yeah. But he points to to one principle which for me is life transforming, and that's the principle that he calls noesis, the idea of certainty, that that feelings of knowing, feelings of certainty. And the example I've been giving for decades now, when I was 17, I had a conversation with the born again. And we talked for about two hours on a sunny afternoon on the street. And he backed away from me. I just reread the Gospels and, you know, from an agnostic point of view. And there's so much that's beautiful in there and useful. Um, and it, but he wanted to try and impress on me these ideas. And I'm saying, well, that's not what the gospel says. You know, it says this. <laughs> I just read it. So I was able to. And he backed away from me. He was like he wouldn't turn his back on me because he can see, you know, I was disagreeing with him. So I must be of the devil or something. And he looked at me yes. and he said. I don't understand the Bible, but I know it's all true. Oh, boy. And you find yourself in, in that place where you know how much of what we believe in life is because we want to believe it and you know how how willing are we to test it and i'm with you i think that when you connect to the sense of compassion let's just call it that okay. when you connect to that and you realize and for me that was i was born there that that i was concerned about other people's feelings other people's happiness you know was was important to me and i i'm at the opposite end of the scale i have the empathy disorder yeah. and, and i'm gonna label it for what it is oh. it, it you know because you don't get to decide you know it's a oh. knee-jerk thing just as your responses were the way your nature is mm. and you know it can be you can be pulled too far into this and find that, that that you are not you're not even doing the best you might do in the world because you're being pulled around and often if you're empathetic you're being pulled around by people who are don't have your best interests at heart oh. and you find yourself serving things that they want uh to that extent that there's a, a type of person i call a weaponized empath mm. and looking at Scientology and, and having interviewed so many of the senior officials of Scientology people who work with Hubbard, there are some really lovely people who did really gruesome things to others for years because they believed this would eventuate in something good. I think you can even look at Heinrich Himmler, the founder mm. of the SS, the head of the Gestapo, minister for the interior, uh, creator of the Arnenerb, the Lebensborn, all of this horrible nonsense that he generated, that he may well have been driven by empathy. He may well have been convinced that by exterminating Jews, Romanies, Blacks, Slavs, anybody who got in the way, a good and perfect and heavenly existence would be achieved. There's wow. a thought. I can see from your face that that one's That's radical. Wow. And I loved how you said that because I've never really thought much about that site really until I met Matt. He, mm. he is, I think he might suffer from some of that same, I'm not diagnosing him, but he, he might be a victim to his empathy. Yeah. And, and maybe you you can be abused and used so readily by people who can spot that, you mm. know, 
will pay my bills. And maybe you end up enabling people instead of really helping them. Exactly so. Um, and Fascinating. That, there's a, a book, um, has it gone? Against Empathy by uh, Paul Bloom at Yale. And huh. uh, he argues the case for rational compassion. Ooh. And uh, you don't have to read the book now because that's all he says. Hey, I just sunk in. I got it. Yeah, just saved you $25 there. What I came to is that in life we have the the pleasure we feel and and i think it's good to feel pleasure i'm i'm against puritanism i don't see any any point in it at all it bores the hell out of me but if we actually want to be happy if you want to be satisfied contented in life for me the only way of doing that is by helping other people it's by getting something done um i had a an email a couple of weeks ago <laughs> this happens from time to time from a woman who said we spoke for an hour on the phone in 1994 and it was life transforming. And I'm kind of going, well, yeah, it was life transforming because somebody listened to her and had an answer to her question, which was she'd actually been involved for years with a sub Scientology cult run by a guy who'd worked with her, but and who I knew reasonably well. I used to, I interviewed him for my book in, in the eighties and I'd see him a couple of times a year. And she calls me 10 years after I first met this guy and I get on with this guy. You know, he's kind of a friend of mine, you know, not close. And, and she goes through the details of what had happened to her and says, was I involved in a cult? And she's not named him. Mm. And so I say, well, you know, whatever we're going to call a cult. Yes, this, this sounds like a destructive cult. You know, let's mm. put the adjective in there. And she then named the leader of the group and I'm going, and I knew he was still practicing Scientology and I tried to persuade him it wasn't a great <laughs> idea. But so I was a catalyst for that to happen. And I, I, I don't think that makes me any great shakes. I, I just listened and identified from what I know about abusive relationships that, that it was an abusive relationship. But to get that, you know, 30 years later, to have somebody say, you facilitated a transformation in my life. For me, that that is, you know, that makes me happy. That makes me content. I'm going to jump on that bandwagon because in addition to sex, drugs, rock and roll and art, that makes me happiest. Mm. Is, to, is when someone says my life has improved because you contributed this to it. I would have mm. jumped on that bandwagon. And, that's, and so if, if that's the hype for me and you also see... And we come from polarized ends of the spectrum. Perhaps we can start to change something here with this. This is what excited me when I when I saw Matt's conversation with you. You know, I'm, as I've, I've mentioned, James Fallon and his notion of the prosocial sociopath, uh, which I think is very important. If we cannot change predatory behavior, I don't think humanity has a hope. And you know, my formulation is that until we stop fighting wars, we won't be able to maintain our environment properly. That's the that's thing that we're doing that's, you know, and then you've got all of the corporate greed and all of that stuff. But I think warfare is the key to it. And warfare comes out of propaganda. 
that comes out of tricking and deceiving people into thinking that other people are actually their enemies. Mm. And, and we see this sort of, you know, rather than finding the perpetrator of a deed, so say Muhammad Atta and, and his 18 friends at 9-11, they all died. So you can't get your own back on them. And <laughs> the idea was, well, let's, let's go to Afghanistan and Iraq and kill an enormous amount of people until we feel better. And we don't feel better. What we actually feel is we've now got tens of thousands of veterans in the US yeah. and the UK who will suffer for the rest of their lives, quite possibly, because of what happened to them, because of the situation they were put into. So the victims of 9-11 were not just the 3,000 tragic deaths there, yeah. but the, the estimation is that three quarters of a million people have died in Iraq and 150,000 in Afghanistan. So we're, we're close to a, a million people to get that taste of revenge, which wow. has actually just made everything worse. So for me, if we can teach people to look at the propaganda and say, oh, that's not in fact true, rather than I'm going to go and kill those people. You know, yeah. I, the first Iraq war, I was in Bishop, California, the day it broke out. And we went into a store and there was a guy who was even bigger than you standing behind the counter and there was a gun on the wall, you know, oh. which in Britain is not usual. And, and I, I smoked then. So I was asking for a packet of cigarettes and the guy looked there and folded his arms and said, what do you think about Iraq? And I had to translate that back into Iraq, obviously for, for my culture. I see what he's saying. And I, I was kind of dumbfounded and thankfully my companion was a journalist and quick with words. And he managed to say something anodyne, which didn't make the guy react. And the guy just looked at us both and he said, yeah, I think we should bomb those fuckers flat. And it's sort of, this is the cradle of civilization we're talking about. Yeah. This is yeah. like that. This is, yeah. why are these people, these poor, poor people, the consequence of your ire? Because he was angry with the world. Because it had stimulated his sense of vendetta, the blood feud, getting his own back. And it doesn't work, does it, Sean? No, no. You just can't it, be satisfied, to use Muddy Waters' expression about it. it yeah. John, let me ask you something that I'm not sure I can, uh, um, that I understand. Hmm. See, from my perspective, I don't think we're going to be able to start to uh, challenge war until the individuals are changing. Uh, collective mindsets have never worked. That's what, why religion doesn't work. Yeah. And so we have to work. And so on my, where I'm on my end, that's why my focus is entirely spiritual on the individual, uh, deciding what they believe to and how they're going to become a better person yes. in this world, right? Your thing is that it's going to be to stop the war. How can we meld those two? Because from my mind, I don't care that a million people are dying right now. I don't care about the big picture stuff. So how can we how can we unite that? And that seems like the beginning of religion. That I'm the shaman saying, let's do this. And you're saying, let's bring world peace. And we form a religion. And then we become the very thing we hate. Yeah, I think it's not through collectivism that, that we, we solve this problem. I think it's through understanding. And you know that, that's been my life's work. Um, perhaps in our next conversation, we can pick up the 
list of predatory traits that 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 I teach. I, I use the term human predator, and I give a you know having gone carefully through the literature, you know Robert Hare and Kent Keel and um, Emmy Thomas and and on and on and on. You know from Hervey Cleckley's first work, um, Mask of Sanity. In, in fact, even going back to the first time the word psychopath was used, which I think was in 1841, to describe something wow. nothing like the condition now. Then in the First War, when it was found there were a lot of malingerers, there were people who were in hospital who really didn't have anything wrong with them, and they the word psychopath was used to describe them. Oh. They were people who had a sense of self-preservation, let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you change minds and hearts that that... And that's why your case is vitally important. The idea that somebody who really doesn't care can come to care and can come to care by reason, yes. not by some emotional experience. Right. But, you know, you had your awe experience, but you then took it and made something of it. You worked yeah. with it. Now, if that can happen for you, it can happen for almost anyone. There probably are a few Ted Bundys out there that we need to just lock up. <laughs> you know, nothing much we can do about that. But yeah. I think because that there's this kind of balance in society that there are too many people that, and the, the current greed, the current, you know, I, I'm I'm all right, Jack, I'm looking after me, has become so such a powerful drive. You know, kids when it used to be when I was a kid. You'd ask kids what they wanted to be, and they wanted to be a train driver or a fireman. Nowadays, they want to be a content creator, uh, majority yeah. of children. I want to go and make vacuous statements on the internet so that people will love me. You know, it's like, Believe me, kids, it didn't work for me. You know, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, John, one more thing just from my end on, on the things we've just said. Um, my my goal is to take my experience and help do whatever I can to destroy organized religion mindset. Mm. Because I don't think you find more of a collective crazed mentality than the far evangelical right. Mm. And, and I mean, they're, they're, they're almost to where Hitler was. I mean, they're almost there. So if we can, from my perspective, I want to focus on reaching into the church and get them to see that there it's reason that that we proceed forward on. It is not blind faith. It's just our reason. And, and that is how I think it will help heal the individual. So that I just want to say that because that's where I'm coming from and what we do is we're really trying to show uh what religion really is yeah yeah and that it that it's been perverted i mean if we look back historically to constantine oh. you know who makes christianity purportedly the religion of the roman empire and yeah. if you want narcissism this man um his mother reckoned she'd collected the bones of all of the apostles and when he died he was put in a sarcophagus at the center with all 12 of them round him Oh, I knew she was bad, but I didn't know that one. Wow. Uh, oh. And, and I, I, what you just said, what you said earlier about idolatry, that, that religion in almost all cases tends to be idolatry. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I, 
I have a, I'm an agnostic, but I have a, I'm, that's why I'm not an atheist. I have a tremendous respect for the teachings of all sorts of um, minor mystics. You know, I mean, some of the yeah. Sufi teachers in Islam, yeah. um, mm -hmm. you know, Rumi, of course, the, the, the most popular poet in America, isn't it bizarre that a, a Muslim Yeah, poet, yeah, that's weird, know? huh? But, but he was, he was incredible. He was like Shakespeare, but without the depressive illness, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I... I set out when I was 14, I decided I wanted to know the truth. You know, you're 14. What do you know? And I wanted the truth. And even if it was sinister and horrible, I wanted to know what the truth was. And I spent a lifetime following that idea. And I'm incredibly pleased to say at the age of 68 that the truth I found and truth, you know, I mean, what does that mean? Is that you can live a happy and reasonable life. You don't have to pretend that, you know, you're going to go to heaven or or that oh. this, that or the others. You can be in the eternal now. You can. Okay. It can be happening now. And this is it. And Ooh, yeah. that makes me happy. I mean, something else that I'd like to, to reflect on from, from what you said, which I so thoroughly agree with, is you don't believe in hell. No. Oh, no, no. Now, uh, biblically, it was a place, it was the covered place that the Jews believe you went to, the place of the dead, uh, so fine. But in my thought on ancient scripture, it's done away with by the victory of our uh, of Jesus. Um, and, and the thing that's interesting about that is religion does not make any sense at all. If Jesus came and he saved the world from our sin, how are we still sinning if he paid for it? Oh, how are we doing that? And and how are we going to hell if you know all the vic it's just nonsense. There's no reason to it. So, yeah, no hell. How could a loving God create us? This is the and and then and then no, he's gonna send us to hell if he knows everything. Come on. Mm. And That's and who insidious. who would we be if we were willing to swan around in heaven knowing that people were being perpetually tortured? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know it's so full of oh, I would love more depth with you, even just as friends about uh, religion and uh, and and also uh, one more thing. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit uh, rabbit traily here, That's but right. because you're an artist, mm -hmm. and we talked you talked about Bowie and you talked about performers. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are two places where nobody should have training. Nobody should have the traditions of man passed down to them to 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 uh, reinvent, to replicate, and that is art. I don't think we should have art school. And and this is where I wanted to ask you because I think you might be greatly different. I think that art should come from the soul, and so to teach traditions is teaching people just how to do how art has been done. So I'm against art school, and I'm against theology school. Because if, God, if it's the study of God, why are we uh, studying the traditions on the study of God when all we're doing is is regurgitating them out to people? And it's so individually art school individually art school should be between the creator and and God, and religion should be between the person and God. And forget about the training. Now, you being an artist, I wanted to hear your thought on that. Mm, it's a very interesting point. I think where schooling is is cloning, where it's forcing cloning. somebody to have the same thing. I mean, if we look at Egyptian art over the period of 
2000 years, it's all the same. <laughs> With the exception of the Ignatian period, where you get this rebellion for one generation. But you can't tell the difference. They have things that are a thousand years apart and they all look exactly the yeah. same. Now, so that's what what's giving you pause. And I understand that. On the other hand, Eric from um, In the Art of Loving, which is yeah, I read it. absolutely wonderful book. Um, oh, yeah. He says um, that people expect that they'll know how to love, that they'll they'll just see the person and then love will will be there. And he says, no, you have to learn it. It's like a painter saying, when I see the perfect subject, then I'll pick up the paints and be able to paint it. So with painting, it's, it is a technical process. It's like playing a musical instrument. So yeah. there is something to learn. And there is the craft of painting, which painters nowadays use plastic paints and don't worry about craft. Um, mm. But I only use linen canvas because I know cotton canvas only has a life of 50 years. I stretch it properly so it won't tear. I prime it with something that's permanent. Um, and I then use paint. I don't use fugitive colors, as they're called. You know, During the Impressionist period, chrome yellow was used. And it's a beautiful bright yellow. It's what was used in the sunflowers by Van Gogh. But it turns green and then black with time. Now, Van Gogh got away with it, and it just turned a kind of dirty, soupy orange because he mixed wax in with his oil paint to make it thicker, what's called an encaustic technique. So you have the craft of the thing. And if you don't have that, you'll do what Picasso and Jackson Pollock did, and you'll use car enamels on canvas. Those paintings are falling apart already. Oh, um, the second thing is you'll learn technique. And if in lo looking at, say, Rembrandt's approach to painting, Rembrandt for my money, the greatest representational painter of all time with, with no contest. And I've seen, mm. I think, 70 Rembrandts in the flesh now. Wow. Um, and I've studied x-rays of them and all sorts of things to, to understand them. And he knew how to lay in lead white and, and his paintings are almost bas reliefs. They're so thick, they're mm. so solid. So the original painting is done in, in lead and he would then glazed down over that to get the effects he got. Now, at the beginning mm. of his career, if he painted a lace rough, there will be a thousand strokes to make it. By the mm. end of his career, he used straw brushes, round brushes. In fact, flat brushes weren't used till the 19th century. Round straw brushes this big, and it's one stroke. And then the glazers go this way and that way. And when you look at it, so... I think there's a proficiency that can be developed, but I agree with you that what tends to happen is that the people teaching impose their view of what's correct. So a friend of mine was at, at university doing a, a fine art degree, and one of his tutors, who was a reasonably well-known painter, came over and said, oh, I'm really sorry, but I'm not seeing any angst in this work. Oh. And my friend looked at him and said, oh, good, <laughs> that's what I was after. You know? So <laughs> there's so much is imposed from above. Turning to theological college, I think if there's if it's a place where people can discuss and, you know, have discussions such as the one we are having now, yeah. rather than a place where they have this imposed upon them. Yeah. So an aspect of that would be the history of the Bible, where we mm -hmm. get to Bart Ehrman and, 
and these kind mm. of guys are quite fascinating. John Allegro, back with mm. the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, who decided ultimately that Jesus had taken hallucinogenic mushrooms. Okay, we went a little bit off the plot there. but He's allowed. Yeah, He's why not? We're, we're, we're talking about it. And exactly, yeah. that's the important thing, that nothing is verboten. We're allowed to have ideas and talk about them. Um, which I, you know, two of my closest friends are, are Christians and they really are Christians. I mean, they help people. Um, one of them, I, I don't know when the last time he went to church was, he's not in the least concerned, you know, concerned about that, but he's helped thousands of people and he charges no money. That um, guy's my brother. Yeah. That's my brother. I love that man. Yeah. And, uh, I'll introduce you to him sometime, but I would love that. When we, he's a theologian. That was, mm. that was his part of his training. And if I have some question, if I bring up some knotty problem from scripture, I know he's not going to shout at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah. And and so we, you know, we get into biblical history and we go, well, of course there are uh, Babylonian ring seals that show the stories that would would come out in the Old Testament. Abraham comes from Ur. He comes from this part of the world. And Jehovah, Yahweh, in his origin, is one of, I think it's 72 offspring of uh, Asherah, who to Christians has become the, the demon Astarte. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what we are dealing with is the difference between history and psychology mm. that if the bible stories get us to and and certainly uh i think it's called pesha by rabbinical scholars that the bible is torah is there to be discussed it's not mm. the end it's not a set of apart from the ten commandments it's not a set of rules it's a set mm. of ideas that can be constantly interpreted by each generation mm. often in christianity that's you know, the hermeneutics, the exegesis, the idea of looking, it's just become this, you know, like, and this fascinated me when I, I was 13, when I walked away from Christianity, because the Christians I was seeing were cruel. Yeah. They were unforgiving. And so I didn't want anything to do with the God they worshipped. Yeah. And But it made me, it started a fascination with the history of religion and mm. the different heresies. So you have, for mm. example, the Donatist heresy. Um, oh, yeah. If the priest is impure, is the sacrament still valid? And the Catholic Church ruled it is. <laughs> and the Albigensians or Cathars said, no, the priest must be perfect. Mm. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And so the Catholic Church performed genocide on them. It's the first genocide ordered by the Catholic Church in the south of France in the late 12th, early 13th century. And kind of again, I think there may be some basic principle here that's gone wrong, you know, that yeah yeah, yeah. Th this as far as i'm concerned the whole of this business and i think you and i agree completely on this if god there is then god is love not revenge not hatred not i'm superior to you because i believe in the right god it, it's right it is the expression and it's active it's not an yes. object it, it's a verb it's you it's know, a verb you said that about love in an interview so yeah right oh, with wow. you right with you on all of that all of it um 
you you used an expression I liked, which was that you talked about something being the, the underbelly of all religions. This yeah. this notion that um, as we as we look at religions, wherever we go, we find these individuals who live wonderful and saintly lives. Though the reason that some people have been made saints is a little bit odd, you know, like yeah, the stylites yeah. who sat on top of poles for years. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's very useful to humanity. Or St. Yeah. Bridget, of course, who was a Cornish fertility goddess who was adopted into the church to get her followers. You know, it can be a bit difficult. But we see this everywhere that that somebody seems somebody comes along and, and they live a good life and they they inspire other people to do something. But then we have this thing when the Puritans took over in, in the 1640s in this country, they whitewashed all of the paintings in the churches and every now and then somebody will take the whitewash off and go oh there's this incredible painting underneath these incredible paintings are usually of armageddon or hell and i used to think that this was so that the congregation would be frightened and would would live good lives so they didn't go there then yeah. i came to realize it was because the congregation was sitting there again all the people i hate are going there you know? <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> Not really what was Fiber. in Yeah. Okay. Wow. I I think let's come to a pause and, and, and let's come back together again in a few weeks' time. Um, Look forward to it. Yeah. So, so, so much to talk about uh, because of who you are. I, I see that I'm able to talk about uh, things because you're so well-read in, in areas that many people aren't. And so when you bring it up, there's no conversation. And so yeah. I really think it's going to be beneficial to me as a person. And I'm, I'm grateful, John. Yeah, well, me too. I, I, I think this is the beginning of, of a very interesting adventure. And yeah, um, I, I think, I hope that the people watching will feel so too. And um, we'll let Sean know when we post so he can look at the comments and... Um, rage at you in the comments possibly you know <laughs> like an old testament prophet yeah um, no more of that no like it ah that is such a wonderful adornment what can i say you know <laughs> uh, yeah the only problem is uh men like it but the ladies they're not fans no that's uh, you know get them to watch the harry potter movies and you know bifurcate yeah. it or, you know <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, my friend. You have a great weekend. Yep. And uh, let's um, we, we'll say goodbye to the folks here and I'll, I'll switch the recording off. Thank you to everybody for spending time with us. And please do comment because we, we will try and respond, um, yeah. even if even if you say something nasty. But we, you know, Spike might well take take that down if you do. So so um, preferably be courteous. You know, if you want to disagree, do so agreeably if you would. So thanks very much for, for spending time with us. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.